I bet you a 15 handicaps listen to this saying, Kerry sounds like me. I can't believe he's a 3.6, not talking like a 3.6. So we're going to dig into this. And welcome back. Welcome aboard another part train. I'm one of your co-hosts, Evan Singer. I got my other co-host, my partner in crime, Mr. Matt Cermak. How we doing? We just had one of those interviews where we looked at each other. We said, wow, after we did it, it's one of those with the Red Rooster golf team. We got a tour pro and carry co-founders of the best glove in golf. Also a three handicap and a pro really an incredible combo. But before we get to that, guys, in case you're new, or if this is your 190th trip on the train, welcome aboard. If your golf game's off the rail, you're sick of riding the struggle bus, you've come to the right place, especially this episode. The part train helps frustrated golfers enjoy the ride again on and off the course, because if you can learn to smile through bad golf, you can smile through anything. The part train podcast unpacks the mental game with PGA tour pros like today, best-selling authors, CEOs like today, sports psychologists, everyday golfers, and more to make the hardest game in the world feel easy, help you finally get back on track. This episode of the part train, like every episode is presented by Roback Activewear, our favorite activewear, polos, hoodies, tees, Q-zips. It's the only thing we wear. It's the best stuff. Go to roback.com, enter the code train, get yourself 15% off. It's hot. It's the only thing that's going to wick away moisture like you need. So polo season guys, go get them. Roback.com, enter the code train, get yourself 15% off. If you've already used it, use a new email, get yourself a discount. Let's go. This episode I think was really, really special. And I know we love all of our episodes in different ways, but this one really hit close to home because to me, there is nothing more relatable than a guy who's been a tour pro for 20 plus years, played a full season on the PGA tour, been grinding on a bunch of mini tours. He's got the game, but how do you get out of your own way and not let the results, AKA your livelihood get in your way. And on the same other side of the token, you've got Carrie is co-founder of red rooster golf gloves. One of our favorite partners who's a 3.6 handicap, but also sounded bogged down by the game at times. Sounded like the inconsistency of his game, not having a plan. Some people might be listening to this as a 12 or 15 and be like, what are these guys talking about? They've got it. They've got it made. I've been dreaming of being like them. So I think the lessons in this episode is just so relatable and so valuable because there is no finish line. There is work in progress at every level. And it's all applicable, regardless of what level you are at. I agree with you, Ev. Brad and Kerry are great. Red Rooster Golf, these golf gloves, I mean, I'll say it again, best fitting glove I've ever worn. What a story when you bring a, two guys together on a vision, guy who's played on the mini tours, he's played on the buy.com tour, he's played on the PGA tour. Then another guy is very successful in business, is a college golfer, is a three mm-hmm. handicap. And then they come together to build this really great golf company that I think is changing the landscape, especially as it relates to gloves. But yeah, the look in, right? Look at this, Ev. We're all kind of different. We've got a plus five. Who knows what, Brad? He's probably plus seven, right? Yeah. I played in college. I'm a scratch. We got carries a three. You're a seven. You've been a five. Like, And we're all just kind of coming together to talk about what it's like to make a U.S. Open, what it's like to play in Thursday Night Men's League what it's like to you know, finally figure out your putting, what it's like to be in a scramble, like really great stories. I'd love to have them back. I don't know. It was very powerful in many ways that we were all just kind of vibing off each other. And that's what the mental game roundtable format is all about. And know? it's why we're partnering with them. Like Carrie said on the show, we were talking to them for the, over a year before we became partners, before they even launched when they were Kickstarters. And just imagine 
how rare it is to be a new company in golf and then win the number one performing golf club by my golf spy. Unbelievable. Beat Foot Joy, Callaway, Titleist, beat all of them. And I've and worn all the gloves and so have you have. And I want people to know yeah. you're very particular. Yeah. You're not just saying that because there are partners. Like no, you would I, be playing a foot joy if you didn't like the I don't just gloves. change balls or change gloves or yeah, just because this, this is cool or they gave us a call. I might try it, but I'm, I'm a stickler. Right. And I absolutely believe in the medium large fit for me. But they've got 26 fits. And hey, what's the the range rooster glove? Be on the lookout for that, guys. More yeah. to come because that's going to change the game for your practice. You know, well, yeah, that's a, a glove designed for the range. It'll last you all yeah. year. Designed for durability, but also they won second place best performing glove with their range glove. Just a ton of amazing stuff coming from them. Redroostergolf.com/train for twenty percent off. We'll get you guys this conversation. Seriously, probably one of my favorite roundtables we've ever done. So thank you guys as always. Yeah. Awesome. hopping aboard the train. If we've added any value, give us a review at Apple Podcasts. We post content multiple times a day, every day on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. So follow us there. Send us your messages. Let us know how you're doing. I try to answer every one of them. We love the community we're building and we're so grateful that you guys are hopping aboard and getting better and enjoying the ride. So Serm, I don't care if you're a 3.6 or a plus five, you're playing for your livelihood. You can't figure out what part of your game to lean into if you're going to play for score, if you're not, inconsistencies, all of it. What do they got to do, sir? Just enjoy the ride. Enjoy the ride, guys. Take care. Carrie Moher and Brad Fritch. Guys, I'm so excited to welcome you aboard the part-time. We got a ton to talk through, but welcome aboard. Hey, guys. Good to be here. So we are just talking off air. What in a unique fun podcast I think we're going to get into today. It's pretty rare to have a tour pro with his business partner and co-founder to talk mental game roundtable, right? What you each have learned about each other, carry what you've learned from Brad. I actually shouldn't even say who the tour pro is. Maybe we'll let people <laughs> figure it out on their own. I just can't wait to get into each of your games, find nuggets for our listener, but at the same time, get into the business a little bit. And one of our partners and how that came about and why we believe in what you're doing. So let's give a state of the union. Let's give a little overall state of affairs with both of your games. Handicap may be more prevalent for you, Carrie, but for a pro, it's always kind of fun to hear their handicap as well. If you have one, Brad, state of the game, handicap, what you're working on, what's working, what isn't. But let's just start with kind of the state of the union. Carrie, why don't we start with you? Let's do it. Now, looking forward to this chat, guys. I checked my index. It's going up, unfortunately. I'm a 3.6 currently, and my game is unpredictable, I would say at this point. The last two weeks in men's night, I shot a 70, and then I shot followed it up with an 81. <laughs> so okay. that's a good kind of summary of where my game's at. Lots of things I'm trying to sort of work on and fix, and some things are working or seem to be clicking some rounds and not others. I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate. And what do you hang your hat on in your game? And what's hit or miss right now? There's nothing in my game that I'm, <laughs> Come on. you know, I, everything is like a little bit spot. But the 70, I was like putting lights out. Putting is probably generally like a little bit of a straw. I'm probably a decent scrambler, you know? Okay, sure. And then I get my iron game ironed out for a round or two. Sometimes I drive it well. I've got decent length. Tend to be that I just can't put all the pieces together. That's my 
challenge. It's really interesting. I bet you a 15 handicaps listen to this saying, Kerry sounds like me. I can't believe he's a 3.6. He's not talking like a 3.6. So we're going to dig into this. I love this. What a great start. We're going to dig into more with you, Kerry. But first, Brad, let's start with you roughly. If you have an index, I think that's good context. But state of affairs on your game, how you've played this year, if you've played in any events, which ones, and give us an overall state of affairs with you. Yeah, so I actually do keep a handicap. About three years ago, I was playing enough at my club just outside Raleigh where I'm like, you know what? I'm probably not a plus four. It's probably a little bit better than that. Guys might be getting shafted. So, hey, let's let's have a, what do you call it? A gin handicap. Yeah. And uh, so around then it was about a plus six. I put in a bunch of scores. I'd put in all my tournament scores from whatever tour I was playing. Right now I'm a plus 4.6. It's been around plus five for a while I don't play a ton in the last six months. I haven't played a ton. Like there've been two weeks that have gone by that I haven't touched a club, which is very rare, but I'm kind of transitioning right now from, you know, tour player grinding, going to Monday qualifiers into business and not really sure what my path is going to be in terms of playing. I can just give you what I did last week. I actually played five times in six days last week, which is very unusual for me. Two fun days at Oakmont, which was amazing. We talked off air about that. I shot 74.70 from, I guess they call it the one-up tee. It played about 7,200 yards. And I think the rating is like 75.6. So it's still, I mean, Oakmont's very difficult. Yeah. Uh, so so two birdies, two bogeys the second day. It was great. I felt great about it. Didn't make a ton of putts, but scrambled well. And then I shot one over par at my home course up in Ottawa, Canada. It was not very good. But then I played a course in Toronto called Coppinwood and I shot 71.67. The 67 was just really good. And I think that's just a product of playing multiple days in a row. State of my game, I'd say, unfortunately for my past, I'm driving it better now than I ever have. <laughs> so it doesn't exactly help me now, but I'm driving it great. And I scramble really well too which is interesting because I don't put in the time to practice much anymore. About a year and a half ago, I kind of had a little breakthrough with what I'm going to feel like when I'm chipping. My hands got a lot more dormant and I move my body more and all of a sudden I chip it closer. And when you chip it closer, the percentage of putts you make goes up. So fewer seven footers and more three footers. That kind of has stuck with me. I'm not sure exactly why, because they would say, you know, you have to put in the time to practice your short game. And I haven't lately. I just don't shoot as many low numbers in the last six to eight months as I used to. So it's more of a two under, three under, throwing in a couple bogeys here and there. Whereas if I was full-time playing, I probably wouldn't make those bogeys most of the time. Probably averaging like one or two more bogeys around. So it's harder to shoot way lower, which is how you get your handicap down. I'll give you one funny story. This is years ago. It was Q school finals in Arizona and I shot even par the first day. Then I went six under eight under 10 under the last three days. And that was to get my full corn Ferry tour card back. I think that was for the 2019 season. And I just started keeping my handicap. And so I rolled up to the course one day, you know, four months later and they said, all right, you're giving back nine today. And I'm like, what? Great. What are you talking about? He's like, well, we looked up your handicap. You're a plus seven and a half and you're playing the blues. I'm like, oh my God, like giving back (laughs) shots when you're playing guys, I'd much rather let everyone else get all the shots. So Evan, let's say you're a five. Yeah. I would give you 14. I'd play off a scratch way more comfortable because I can't tell you when I'm going to make a birdie for a par. Right. But I can certainly count on the five handicap to make 
five, six, seven bogeys. That's way more advantageous to me. It's a challenge playing guys with shots when you have to give back because usually they're par threes. So the famous saying at my club is, well, Brad made two for three. <laughs> it's like, yep, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. <laughs> so I'm not the best teammate at times yeah. at my club. Sometimes guys are like, hey, you, you can have them today. <laughs> you're but, you're uh, a little, you're, yeah, your <laughs> handicap's a little low. But Brad, talk about your experience at, at Oakmont. I'm sure you've played a lot of US Open courses over the course of your career. Most people haven't, but difficult golf courses are revealing in your game. And what did you learn out there? I think that's it's a good conversation for all of us going from. And do you like those more? I certainly do. Over the course of my career, I would say, hey, I'd much rather play a tournament where the scoring is is difficult. Like, hey, the winning score is going to be eight under, 10 under par. I think that's why I did really well at uh, Torrey Pines a bunch of times. That was just a course where it was like, hey, you shoot two under, you move up the leaderboard. A lot of tournaments, you shoot two under and you get lapped. So I was always a, let's make it more difficult, grind out pars, throw a couple birdies in there. But specifically at Oakmont, First of all, what a great setting. You stand at the top of the hill at the clubhouse. You can see 17 holes on the golf course, which is, cool. to me, I don't recall ever seeing that wow. anywhere I've been. And wow. it's just kind of a really cool setting. You can pick out a group on the course and say, hey, there's, you know, there's Evan and Matt. They're on number three. And you can tell, like, that's where you are. We can also tell who's holding up the golf course <laughs> because of <laughs> if anyone's behind. But uh, Oakmont, the penal nature of Oakmont is in missing the fairway in the fairway bunkers. They're very difficult to get out of, especially for the, you know, average handicap player. You're just not reaching the green from most of those bunkers. So when I play very cognizant of lines, they have great markers at Oakmont. There's white poles behind every green. Most of the time the caddy says, hey, see that white pole? You just aim at that off the tee because you can't see every fairway from the tee. I found the difficulty in Oakmont is the guy who designed it. And he only designed one course in his life. He was an engineer. He designed Oakmont, which is pretty amazing. Wow. But the general contour of the golf course, the greens don't match that contour. So it's really difficult to see when you're putting uphill, when you're putting downhill, what side hill, like they're building the contours into the overall grade of the course. So I hit multiple putts, either way short, way long especially the first day when I didn't play great. It's just hard to get a handle on how hard to hit your putts. And then the contours of the greens are very unusual. It's not, hey, there's one tier, there's two tiers. There's a lot of humps. There's some false fronts. There's greens that go from front to back, like the first hole, which is a crazy hole. I had one guy in my group the second day putt it from 135 yards down that hill. Oh my God. Which was cool. He's like, I got to do it. I got to try. And the caddy's like, yeah, absolutely. You just have to hit it hard enough. You don't think you have to hit it hard, but you do. But he got it on the front of the green from 135 yards. I have played two U.S. Opens. They're very unique. Uh, Chambers Bay was one of them. And then Winged Foot back in 2006. So complete opposite golf courses, complete opposite challenges. I'd put Oakmont in the same vein as Winged Foot, which is you missed the fairway it's death. Chambers Bay was a completely different animal. I don't even know how to describe Chambers Bay. I love the course. It's just very different. It, there's no template for it, in my opinion. It was just a unique challenge. And I played really well there, actually. The experience at Oakmont was amazing, man. I love it. I love going to golf courses like that because there's caddies for everybody and, and they're all grizzled veterans. I've been here for 30 years. The caddy that I had. Great stories. His yeah. His grandfather caddy for Nicholas at the 62 Open when he won. And wow, his crazy. his uncle was caddying in our group as well. So like three generations of caddies at Oakmont, just a cool vibe. And, you know, the membership to me, the guys I, I met there, they're all very, I mean, it's Pennsylvania, it's kind of steel country, 
blue collar. It's not what you'd think. It's not a, certainly not Augusta where it's like, Hey, these are the richest people in the world, <laughs> you know, yeah. just different and very fun. And this is the first golf course where I have become interested in golf architecture from the very beginning. Cause I got to the top of that Hill clubhouse and just see everything. And I'm thinking, ah, this is how this guy kind of thought to do it. And then the greens were so opposite of the contour of the course. I, I always thought you just throw holes down on a piece of land and say, yep, this is a good course. Mm. Um, so I'm interested to dig into more architecture after I played Oakmont. So Carrie, I mean, this is going to be great fodder for the average player because you've played a ton of golf with Brad. You've told me off air, you've learned a ton as a golfer from playing with Brad, watching him play, also learning from him. What are some things that you pick out from Brad's game and things that you've changed from playing a lot of golf with Brad, who's been on tour for years? The first thing is probably how conservative Brad is in his approach. He's a plus five handicap. He breaks par most days, but his mentality isn't going out there and firing over bunkers and firing at pins. That's what I do. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why I get in so much trouble. He's really conservative. He has this game plan and he plays, I guess, the high percentage shots. That's always the thing I come back to and we would all benefit from probably playing more conservative. You'll score better. Brad, you made me think of other plus five, plus sixes we've had on the show. One, you might know Chris Nagel, who just qualified for a second U.S. Open this week. And actually Matt's brother, who is an incredible amateur in the state of Illinois and qualified for U.S. two U.S. mid-ams, right? Yeah. Cermak's brother told me that birdies are happy accidents. Do you agree with that, Brad? Probably depends on the hole, but I believe that birdies you can't force and you're only going to average a certain number of birdies if you put all your rounds together. So what's the best way to maximize those rounds when you happen to have those happy accidents? It's not making bogeys. It's not putting yourself in stressful positions. I'm not going to call it conservative. I like to call it intelligent, stress-free as much as possible. And I have this mantra. I like to repeat it to, you know, guys who I work with a little bit teaching. I say, it's about chances, not chipping. Okay. Yeah. Let's give ourselves like chances that. with the putter, not, oh, hopefully I get this short sided one up and down. Short sides can be okay, depending on what hole you're playing, where the pin is. But overall, you're going to get a putt up and down in two way more often than you're going to get a chip up and down in two. You're never going to average more than five birdies around, let's say. That's kind of the PGA Tour high mark. And so the, the important thing is limit your bogeys, limit the damage. Don't compound one bad shot after another. In terms of my approach, I've always thought, give me the fairway 40 yards back versus the rough 40 yards up. Now, I know that's against kind of the current thinking. I'm a low spin player already. And so even with a wedge in my hand from the rough, it's just never worked out the same as if you watch the high level guys on tour like a Tiger, a VJ in his prime, a Jason Day, guys who can spin it out of the rough. That's not me. I always had trouble with that. So when the whole kind of outlook on get the driver down as far as possible, doesn't kind of matter as long as you keep it within the trees. Uh, that didn't work for me. I'm okay with it because it wasn't a good part of my game, that wedge from the rough. So I was always give me the fairway. I'll try to outduel someone with an eight iron if they have a pitching wedge. That's a great point. And Kerry, kicking it back to you, you're a really good player. Being a three handicap, 
do you think whether it's playing with Brad or just looking at your game, if you're going to save two or three strokes, is it club selection off the tee? Is it just committing to a fat part of the green on the second shots? Might be a combination, but curious when you look back after your rounds, where were maybe the mental errors or the wrong decisions? Because you here three, you got a lot of shots and you clearly can buy. I just haven't been consistent in my approach. So sometimes I have been like bomb and gouge it. And sometimes I, I guess I can get away with it. But, you know, if I look at that 70, it was a really conservative round. I mean, I hit most of the fairways. If I was between a three wood and a driver, I pulled the three wood and got it in play, hitting fat parts of greens. The club I play at has really small greens. Hitting a green period is generally good. Brad's idea of like chances instead of chipping, even though I'm a pretty good scrambler, I'm, I'm often putting a, myself under a lot of pressure. And that 70 was one of the like most stress-free rounds, the 81. I think I had five doubles. So that was there where, is. you know, the hit one bad shot, <laughs> try the hero recovery or just kind of doubling down. So it, it generally does play out. I think like the more conservative I play, I played division two college golf and I was a really conservative player in college and I played really well. Yeah. I hit a lot of two irons and three woods, but I found that oftentimes when I go out, I'm hitting driver all day. Cause I'm like, I might only play once or twice a week. I might as well let the big dog eat. And it, it doesn't lead to better scores. It yeah. sounds like Carrie, there's like an indecision or like desire of commitment and like a, a strategy that there seems to be from what I'm picking up on, like an inconsistency of commitment or strategy there. Is there a tension between like you just kind of alluded to trying to like play to score with like a great strategy and conservative play or smart play versus on the other hand, you just have more fun with bombing and gouging it and you almost don't feel the need to try and score or the strategy or what is that tension? Cause I, I hear an inconsistency with, in regards to commitment. So when Brad was going to Oakmont, I sent him a note that day and I was like playing for score today. And he's like, is there any other way? <laughs> <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> Go on, wake up. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I generally, you know, I played competitive golf and I did still like to compete. And obviously, like when you're competing, it is all about score. But I would say like golf is like my therapy and I'm just so happy to play. And in some cases, if I were to play Oakmont, I'd say like I probably wouldn't play for score. I would just try to like soak it all up, you know, and just enjoy every minute of it and probably hammer driver where I, you know, I try to maybe enjoy golf as much as possible. And there's something very enjoyable about playing golf well and scoring well. I think I'm always kind of struggling with like, do I want to have fun today or do I want to just sort of play for score and grinding out something? Sometimes there's a lot of joy and fun in that. And sometimes not caring about score at all can be really joyful. Some days I don't know which direction I'm going. <laughs> yeah, Brad. I mean, I think that's fascinating because it's just not real life when it's like, let's just go have fun today. You know, when you're going to tee it up for your livelihood, you know, just, just, just enjoy yourself, right? You can't just enjoy yourself, but how do you find that being grateful, being out there, but also still being locked in because you are grinding. That's that trickiness, right? Right. So when Carrie sent me that text, I laughed a little inside because we have a friend who goes on these trips with us and he's all about like, he tees it up and four seconds later, the ball's away. He just wants to hit golf shots time after time. 
doesn't care about score. I've never done that just because of the nature of, like you said, my livelihood, it's always been about score. And so it's, I don't think it's ever going to be like, Oh, I'm going to try to cut it into this pin just because I want, want to, to. like, yeah. yeah, because score ultimately has been what I've been about for 22 years. And it's just really hard to get away from that. So in terms of my approach, I was just thinking as Carrie was talking, is there ever a a way that I play my golf course here any different? And I was thinking about certain holes. And I'm like, no, every time on number four, I'm trying to hit it to the 150 yard marker. Now conditions may change, but sure. I want to hit it to there. I'm never going to try to squeeze it up. I'm never going to try to lay it back. This is exactly where I want to hit it every single time. And so I think that helps me in terms of the repetition. I always like to make decisions be non-decisive. It's not a decision. That's just what I do. So preparing for a tournament, it's like, I need to hit it to that point. Now, again, it may change with condition, but I'm not going to try to do anything different on the fly. I'm going to try to do exactly what I planned to do. So I guess that bleeds into my recreational play or, you know, soft gambling for a couple dollars. I still play the same way, which is, uh, I don't know if it's a personality fault or if it's a it prevents me from having more fun i love golf it's a ton of fun to play but i kind of just play one way and that's kind of yeah. the only way i know how play well too. well what's interesting <laughs> with that brad is with our work with mental golf type that's a different sounds like you guys are the difference of a juggler versus a perceiver i bet brad is a juggler because juggers have predestined plans and they have to stick to their plan and that's how they gain confidence where carry with a perceiver are more adapters. The predestined plan can actually feel restrictive and they actually gain freedom from seeing what they have that day, taking the information that presents themselves and then making a decision from there. So that's really interesting that you guys both kind of just define that. Now, I hate to do this because we have so much to dig into, but we are going to take a quick break. And this is so fun because we get to hear from one of our partners, which is you guys. And I think this is so cool because I really want people to know this. And Carrie and I have talked a lot about this. This is not just like a way for us to make a buck. Carrie, how long did we talk before you became a partner of the show? Maybe a year. Well over a year. You're one of our original beta testers before even our yep. Kickstarter. <laughs> yeah. So what I maybe want to start with, so I can give some people, we're going to get into it maybe towards the end of the show a little bit more, but Brad, talk to me first as a tour pro. I, it sounds like, Carrie, Brad taught you a lot about the importance of a glove. And I think that led to Red Rooster Golf being what it is today and starting. Because you guys have only been out for a year. You just had your one-year anniversary. Congrats, by the way. And you guys are now the number one performing glove rated by my golf spot, which is like an amazing Huge. accomplishment. And now Cermak and I don't play any other glove. Brad, talk about the importance of a glove and what you and Carrie first talked about that led to Red Rooster. I think that's really important context. I think the very first time that we had any discussion about a glove, I made fun of him for his awful, <laughs> it had the black stains on it. It was slippery. Oh, it had a little geez. hole in the palm and he was trying to feather a 240 yard three wood on a par three at the dormy club in uh, just outside of Pinehurst. Oh yeah. We paid some money for the round. He spent time to get down there, spent some money to get down there. So it's like, why are you playing with that, you know, garbage? when you've made all these investments in this trip. And I think he went to my bag and I had probably five or six gloves in my bag, you know, all individually in, in still in the package. I didn't ever think a ton about gloves, but if it didn't fit perfect, 
I just threw it over my shoulder, like onto the next one. You can't be uncomfortable wearing a glove. Right. So whether it's fit, whether it feels wrong or whether it's in not great shape after, let's say eight to 10 rounds, like it's time to change. And I think that resonated with Kerry after that trip. I think he stewed on it for a few months and then we started talking more in depth about, Hey, what's important? How do you value it? And how do you think consumers who don't get them for free, like PGA tour, we'd get four or five a week. You can get as right. many as you want. I mean, I knew a guy who got seven pairs of socks every single week in his locker. Like you can get whatever you want on tour. It's the funny thing is when you don't need it, they'll give it to you. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll see. This um, is so important, Brad, because I want to, I really want to make that distinction clear because I don't want to necessarily tell the 15 handicap that the expectation is to have five brand new gloves in your bag to rotate, but the spectrum of how much you value your glove versus what Carrie had. It actually reminds me similar to our conversation of how Carrie plays versus how you play. And these are the nuggets that I love the most because I feel like tour pros have these little nuggets and secrets and then they see us trying to become them and we play totally different. What is the average player, the 12 or 15 handicap getting wrong with their glove? One or two things. Probably too big. They're pulling the strap all the way over across that Velcro, which leads to bunching in the palm, which can definitely affect the durability of the glove. Mm -hmm. And then just incorrect fit across the board. You know, you got a little bit of room in the fingers and that sometimes just comes down to availability. Does the shop have a cadet glove for your shorter fingers? No. Okay. I'll go with what they have. Right. And that definitely like you just want it to resemble as much as you can the size of your hand, obviously. But we take these little shortcuts, right? If we don't have exactly what we want, that was kind of the genesis of our company. Again, like let's figure out every single person who comes to us, let's figure them out until we get it right. And then going forward, they'll have exactly what they need. And for context, you guys have a guarantee that if it's not the best fit glove, they get their money back. And you also have free returns to help people get the right sizes. And what I love is a subscription where it kind of like holds me accountable. You know, like I would normally probably go out and buy a new glove. I'd probably try and stretch my glove out as far as I can until there's a hole in it. Where now I've started to learn through our work with you guys that if my glove is getting crusty and hard, all right, maybe that's now my range glove. I used to just wear the same glove to the range, to the course. So now the subscription is kind of empowering me. To, okay. Oh yeah. I got a new one. And you can pause the subscription too, if it's, if it's, you're not playing or you don't need it, but I just think it, it's cool. It holds me accountable and I'm thinking more about the glove. It makes sense. You know, it should be a second skin and it is my feel. So we're going to get into more before I get back to the show. Sermon, is there anything you want to add about what you've learned or what you love about now having as a somebody, As somebody who's been playing as a kid who played division one, it was always a medium, large Titleist and foot joy forever. I could never get the right size. The glove was always a little too big, but I also feared too tight. Everybody had their own theory. Red Rooster, your guy's fit is the most natural fit I've ever worn. There's not a lot of medium larges out there. I'm, I'm, I'm an ML and I just can't say enough at the consistency of the fit, the durability, and they look cool too. But it was a game changer moment for me, you know, 25 years later in my golf career. So yeah. guys, that's just an absolute testament to you. That's, I literally feel it every day when I put those gloves on. Yeah. And the coolest thing is it gives back to the junior. It's like Warby Parker. It's a give get you buy one, one gets donated to juniors. And that's what we love too. like Roback's been our longest partner. 
they're hugely charitable and yeah, we love aligning with companies that care about doing the right thing for people. So redroostergolf.com slash train, get 20% off everything. There's a guarantee. You're not going to be disappointed. You won't use it, but it's there just in case. All right, let's get back to the show. This is fun. We're going to talk more about Red Rooster towards the end, but I think what I'd love to maybe transition to is Brad, do you smile or laugh to yourself when you play with amateurs, whether it's Gary or not, because I want to continue on that topic I just spoke to, which is you guys seem to have these little nuggets and secrets. You play totally different than us. And I'm finally through this show starting to implement them into my game. And even though my handicap hasn't drastically gone down yet, I know I'm on my way because I'm working on the right things. I've got the mental game. I'm thinking about the way to move the ball around the course differently. But does it make you chuckle to yourself at how much we get in our own way? I think there's two things that I noticed, and I'm sure you'll not be surprised. I've played in you know hundreds of pro-ams with thousands of pro-am partners. And there's just two things that I've noticed. Number one, golfers aren't aware of what their result is. They don't take any feedback from their game. Hmm. And that shows up in how many times do you have to hit the same club from the same distance to realize that that's not that distance of club. You don't hit an eight iron 170 yards. Sorry. (laughs) If you did it once in your life and it was the best shot you ever hit, that's great. But it's probably more like 155. Like, I don't know how many times in pro-ams guys just come up short and not short of the pin, short of the green. What's your consistent shot? Figure that out. Hit the correct club. Maybe not try to swing as hard and get that consistent contact so you can have an awareness of how far you hit your irons. And number two, and this is a little more specific, but it's amazing how many times I see amateur golfers try to shape the ball. Just try to hit the same shot over and over again. Yeah. Like whatever shot you hit with your driver on the range, just go with that all day. Don't try to be hit it. Like I got to hit a strong draw up here to hit the speed slot. Well, one out of 15 times, yeah, you're going to do it. But the other times you'll probably double cross it, which in that case would be, you know, a hard right turn if you're a right-handed player and you're going to be in trouble, like hit the same shot over and over, make it boring. That's what's going to bring you the most consistent results. But again, that's me taking score as the ultimate goal of the day instead of carry, which is, oh, what do, what do I feel like doing today? Do I want to feel like bombing and just don't care about score? Whatever score happens, happens. Or is am I really trying to maximize the day? Again, that's that's probably a fault of mine is that I play the same way every time. And I'm just trying to get a score out of it. And then that little tiny nugget I was telling you about, golf is full of smart people, right? Like you get play with CEOs, like guys who are absolute titans in their business. They make tons of money, real estate, finance, whatever. The number of guys who tee up an iron on a par three and the ball is an inch off the ground boggles my mind. Where do you think you're going to hit that ball on the club? The top half of the club? And it comes up short, of course. They're like, ah, man, I can't believe I don't know what happened. It's like, dude, the ball is not supposed to be teed up on a par three. It's on a tee, but it's supposed to be flush with the ground. That part I don't I don't get. I've never really explained that to anyone outside of the guy. Like I try to help those guys and say, hey, man, mm-hmm. like lower it. You'll strike it in the center of the club face. It always surprises me how they don't make that connection in their head after it happens once or twice. They continue to do the same things and they make the same contact. And it's always, you know, top part of the club. You know that feeling. It's an awful feeling. 
Yeah. You know, if, if I did it, it'd be out of the rough and the ball's kind of teed up and you don't hit it center. And it's like, oh, that doesn't feel good at all. That's just a funny anecdote. I thought I'd share that because it's constant too. So next time you go out and play with someone who you think is like a super smart guy off the golf course, just watch that because it's a super easy thing to correct too. Like, hey, dude, never do that ever again, please. <laughs> and you'll be way happier on par threes. <laughs> well, Brad, Brett McCabe, sports psychologist for John Rahm, Billy Horschel, many yeah, guys. He's had so many wins this year. Um, Sam Burns as well. He told us something. He's been on the show a few times. Sermon makes me think of the thing he told us his first appearance on the show where he says, have fun is terrible advice because you can't tell a soldier in Iraq to make it feel like North Carolina because it's not. But I think what's interesting, Brad, how can you play for score without the heaviness or the burden? Have you ever found a way to play for score in a lighter fashion? Probably the one time I played in a no-cut event. Interesting. Yeah. World Cup 2013, I think, went over to Australia. Yeah, with David Hearn. With, da- with David Hearn. And uh, it was a weird team event. Like, just they added up our scores. We didn't play with each other. But there was no cut, and I was hurt. I was probably at 65 70% in terms of how hard I could go at the ball, especially driver. But I really wanted to go. And out of 60 guys, I think I finished 26. I'm super proud of that because I had nothing physically that week. You're just lighter on your feet when there's no cut. And we see a tour that's forming now with no cut. I'm like, huh, that'd be nice, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but yes, I have been able to, to feel light, you know, tournaments where I've already had my tour card wrapped up and we're just finishing out the season on Corn Ferry Tour. Um, but again, not always performing the best in those tournaments. I think when you're fully accountable to yourself, you play your best. All systems have to be going. Again, my approach was always keep it boring, keep it stress-free. And the more times you repeat something, the more times you're not going to miss a little detail here and there. That was kind of my approach to golf. Well, Kerry, you, me, and Evan don't play on a tour, but we play in our club events. We play in our money games. Sounds like you play in men's league. What's your experience been like playing for money or what you've learned about that or playing in tournaments versus playing in practice rounds? Because for our listeners, it's always important to kind of realize what your game and your mind's like in those different scenarios. I've always liked competing. I generally do, you know, to Brad's point, I, I'm probably going to score better the harder I'm working at scoring. And then it's a matter of like, gets back to like, what's the most enjoyable for me? Like one of my favorite things to do, my course has 27 holes, has a separate nine, it's called the Royal Nine. And it's sort of like an executive nine holes and it's never too busy. And I love to go out there and maybe not even play nine holes, maybe just play a few holes. And there's something about sometimes just playing golf to just sort of enjoy, but when you're playing 18 holes on a men's league or on a team event, or when you're playing for some money, that can be really fun too. I think where I get in trouble is when I'm in the middle ground where it's like, what am I doing today? You know, am I here to grind out a score? Then like, let's do it. You know, that's from start to finish. Sometimes I may be caught having no plan. Sometimes that can work out. And sometimes, you know, the game can humble you. (laughs) Yeah, just yeah. De- defining a purpose, right? For your intention yeah. for the day. It sounds like Kerry would benefit a lot from having an intention, right? Before he plays to just like Brad, it seems like gets confidence from knowing what he does and doing the same thing. Padre Carrington just said this on a video 
that Cermak sent me a couple weeks ago. The comfort of saying the same thing to yourself, doing the same thing in every shot gives confidence. And I'm starting to see that now with my putting. Serm, where I practice the same way. I've got my putter plate. I've got a routine that yep. feels flow that allows me to stroke it. I'm not even thinking about if it goes in. I'm very focused on execution, but in a nice free way. Yeah. And I think that's the goal. But what I would love to know from Brad, what has been your experience with the mental game, Brad? Because it sounds like you've been bogged down a lot from the grind. I mean, you've been on the tour for a very long time. And I love talking with guys like you because we've talked to Nagel and we've had so many mini tour guys and gals on the show. And it's just mind boggling at how many plus fives, plus sixes, plus sevens there are that have played on tour, played on the big tour, qualified for majors, played in majors, competed in majors. And you tell yourself, I've clearly got the game, but it's so hard. And those same players, it's hard to get even appearances. How is the balance for you? What is the mental balance? Have you had a mental approach? How have you tried to relieve some of the weight of the results to just, because clearly you know how to hit a golf shot. So what's been that dichotomy for you? Yeah, I think, first of all, Chris Nagel's like Mr. Qualifier in the last what, yeah. four or five years. He just, if there's a qualifier, he's there. And, and a lot of the time he makes it. He, he has a great percentage of success. He's great. I've had a few phases of my career. As Carrie knows, I'm fairly self-deprecating when it comes to my golf, because I think if you take it way too serious as a pro, it can really weigh you down. And we've seen that a little bit lately with the focus on mental health with a few guys. I mean, some guys who have never experienced much level of failure are currently experiencing that and they don't know how to handle it. Well, I experienced a lot of failure early on. <laughs> I'm not shy to say that. I played Canadian tour for six years, didn't have a win. I kind of progressed slowly, lost my card the first year, requalified, and just got a little bit better each year. And every year at the end, I could say, absolutely, I've improved. So let's keep going. Got onto the nationwide tour and kind of had that exact same experience. Lost my card the first year, requalified, did better. Started to play great in 2010-11, but I had limited access. I was back on the Canadian tour, but I was really playing well. Got onto the, now it's called the web.com tour. We got to get the names right. <laughs> Nike um, tour. Don't forget the Nike yeah, tour. <laughs> yeah. Never did play a Nike tour event though. I played a buy.com event once though. Uh, I don't know if you remember that one. Yeah, I do. Yeah. But, that was but uh, 2012, I was web.com tour. I didn't win, but I had a ton of great finishes and got my tour card. And at that point, that was kind of my repetitive, the advent of my repetitive golf. It was, let's keep doing the same thing. Regardless of the results, we know our process is really good. It's a good process. We believe in it. My caddy believed in it. I had the same guy for that year and the next four and a half years had the same guy. So I really believe a relationship with a caddy is huge. Uh, my number one rule for a caddy is he can't annoy you. And that's honest to God, like you're spending seven, eight hours a yeah. day with the guy at no point. He can't have any ticks. He can't do things that annoy you. Otherwise, like, what are we doing here? That, that yeah. takes up a lot of headspace with a lot of people. So it's like, Hey, he was a friend of mine before caddying. We meshed great. He believed in my system and it became his system, which I think is super important as well. And we had a nice run. I think my mental game was never so externally, people can see the process. It, it's boring. Let's hit greens. You know, let's let's two putt everyone to death. 
two putt a couple par fives for birdie. Hey, I wedged it close. Fantastic. Here's a tap in. Internally, Evan and Matt, it's a train wreck. It always was a train wreck. Like I'm, <laughs> I tell Carrie, I would never hit a three wood off the first tee in, a, in an event. The head's not big enough. Like I'm, That's I a- couldn't do it. That's I a couldn't do it, man. <laughs> like <laughs> I needed the driver head to be there. I needed the ball teed up a lot and it's silly because I know I can hit a three wood, but you know, a- performance anxiety, I guess, but that's the way I was way, way back in 2001. I Mondayed for a tour event and I shanked a pitching wedge out of bounds, like into someone's backyard. I'd be lying if a shank wasn't on my mind once in a while in a tournament round. Sounds yeah. ridiculous. I do it once every four months but it's there in my mind all right we're going to take a quick break and hear from a first time sponsor we're really excited about this sponsor and we're so excited that i had to bring on intern hank intern hank welcome aboard the ad read train what's going on everybody hank you have never had a rangefinder before correct would it be fair to call you a yardage mooch previously Unfortunately, yes. I mean, I didn't have really any way of getting yardage other than, you know, the occasional usage of uh, those apps you can get on the app store. But yeah, no, 100% hand up. I was a yardage mooch. And you know what? No longer. And by yardage mooch, we mean that we would drive to the ball and Hank didn't have a rangefinder and would ask someone that did what it's playing. And luckily for you, Hank, and for all of our listeners who either don't have a rangefinder or are looking to upgrade, and I'm in that category. We'll talk about that in a second. But Precision Pro Golf, they just launched their new NX10, and it's the only customizable rangefinder in golf. They have like 20-plus designs. It's this little clip that goes around the side. You can basically make it whatever you want. But before we get to that, you finally have one. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about what it feels like to finally have a brand-new rangefinder from Precision Pro. You don't have to ask people for the yardage. What has that done for you, your psyche, and your mental game? You know, like I said in the past, I've used these apps that, you know, give you kind of the distance based on like whatever GPS. And first of all, that sucks if you are in a place where you don't have good cell service. So I don't have to rely on that. And the big thing for me is that those apps, you know, you usually enter your score in hole by hole and it kind of broadcasts to you like, hey, you're six over par or whatever. It tells you your score as you're playing the round. And I don't like knowing that. I like, you know, forgetting what I am to par and having a range finder like the NX10 from Precision Pro helps me really kind of lean into that. And it's been huge. And it's also been great that I get to just, you know, drive up to the ball. You know, these uh, these NX10s got that magnetic strip that you can just clip on the, on the side of the golf cart. Love that. Take it off the side. Get the yardage real quick, grab your uh, club and just go and keep playing. And um, also now I can be the guy that the yardage mooches come to for distances. And it feels pretty good. I will tell you, I know that other rangefinders have had the magnetic strip. I personally have never had it until now with the NX10. And it's like that magnet is strong. That There's no thing that there's oh, no yeah. way that thing's coming off. It is such a relief to have that thing off the side of the cart. Just get out, pull it. It also hangs on the bag really nicely too. So what design are you going to get? Let's talk about the designs. There are 20 plus designs. So to help you understand, I know it's a podcast, you can't see it, but it's a little clip. So you can buy as many of these little clips as you want and basically have a new range finder any as much as you want. So I think I'm going to get the cool little floral design. They've also got an American flag, Canadian flag. Our friends over at Random Golf Club and No Laying Up have their own. 
we probably will at some point as well. But there's Army Green. There's a lot of options. So which one are you going to get, Hank? I hate that you said the floral first because that's kind of what I'm leaning towards. You can be a floral guy. That's okay. Floral train. I'm, well, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm going that route probably because, you know, I'm trying to lean into being more of a print guy, more flair on the course. I, you know, I still have that kind of like, oh, like base colors, stripes only, like kind of vibe. I'm still, I'm working on migrating away from that. So totally. probably going to go with one of the floral prints, you know, try to match it up with one of my Roback shirts. So we'll see. Cool. Well, guys, luckily for you, uh, Precision Pro is giving you 20 bucks off. Enter the code train at precisionprogolf.com. And I'll tell you, before we get back to the show, I was really intrigued. And like I've always said, we don't just do partnerships with anyone. Like we got the products and I wanted to put it up against my Bushnell. I think I had a Tour V3, probably like six, seven years old. And Bushnell has been the leader for a long time. And I was like, oh, I wonder how a new Precision Pro rangefinder is different. And it's like, honestly, and I'm not just blowing smoke, it's night and day. My old Bushnell used to miss the flag consistently, kind of always give me like two yardages. And I wasn't sure if I was hitting the flag or behind it. And it took a little bit for the yardage to come in. I used to have to tell Tara when she would use it to like, make sure you shoot the very top tip of the flag or it won't quite get it. Precision Pro, Hank's smiling because he's spoiled. Okay, he hasn't been through the grind of old rangefinder tech like i have this kid is shooting it and it's instant instant gets the yardage gives you the slope right there there's a slope switch you can turn off slope pretty easily if you want it looks cool great magnetic strip it's literally everything you would want and it doesn't break the bank as much as a bushnell or some of these other guys it's 279.99 with their 20 bucks off so go to precisionprogolf.com enter the code train get yourself 20 bucks off pick an awesome design to make it yours and stop being the yardage mooch Look at Hank. He's he's empowered. He's fired up. So go to precisionprogolf.com, enter the code train, get 20 bucks off, and start hitting more greens. Who doesn't want that? All right, guys, let's get back to the show. I consider my mental game to be kind of, especially in those days, 2012, 13, 14, to be below average. I felt like I overcame a lot of that just by seeing results. Like, hey, you finished ninth at Torrey Pines. That's actually pretty good for a guy with a you know, pretty bad mental game. Obviously what we're doing is okay. Let's go forward. (laughs) So a lot of like little demons, little voices in the head. And I've never figured out how to, to get rid of those. I think you just learn to live with them. And again, if I have those little things and they heighten my anxiety, my approach to the round and to golf in general kind of brought that anxiety down. If we're going to have this kind of in the minus column, Let's have your process in the positive column. Let's try to balance it out. Like you said, Evan, I can I can hit a ball. I'm pretty good that way. So there's so much that can go on in a round of golf and in a year of golf on tour that you can't get bogged down by one shot, one tournament, stuff like that. It, you have to have kind of a holistic approach. Like you have to believe what you're doing is correct. Then just kind of conquer your inner your inner demons. It's like anyone who gets to the first tee in a pro-am. I played once with a guy who won a Stanley Cup for the Rangers, and he was terrified on the first tee in the pro-am. I'm like, John, you've played in front of thousands of fans for the Stanley Cup. And he's like, yeah, I know, but this isn't my game. (laughs) You know, this isn't my game. I'm a hockey player. So you just have to kind of believe in what you're doing. It it sounds simple for me to say, ah, get over it. Uh, But but you have to learn learn coping mechanisms, Right. right? Brad, yeah. but that's what well, I think Shuffler said at, you know, the first yes. or the, the presser yes. for the PGA. 
was so yeah, awesome. Right. Self-belief. If you, if you feel it and you know it and you believe it, that's gotta be the feeling for the week. And then think you gotta, you know, play well and get lucky. But sir, I'm thinking about what Scheffler said at the masters. That's he the said, one that blew me away. I think yeah. He so said, great I've already, I did the work. That. Yeah. I did the work. I'm committing. I accept that I'm going to hit bad ones. And if I win great, but there's no coulda, woulda, shouldas because I'm putting it all in there. And it'd be yeah. interesting, Brad, for you to shift your focus on score to focus on commitment numbers, you know, simply shifting to commitments because you're already so process oriented. You know, you've got your routine down pat and that's kind of what you've leaned on. I would love to see what a commitment routine would look like for you. I think Dr. Joe Parent, author of Zen Golf, said when he coached Christy Kerr to become number one player in the world on the LPGA, when she made history at a major, she had a 95% commitment rate for that tournament and just calculating commitment percentages and kind of going with that. I, that, that would be interesting to me to test for you. Don't get me wrong. I, I think my commitment level, especially when I was playing very well, and on the PGA tour was, was pretty high. It's just those little voices, those little ticks that I had lifelong fears, I wouldn't call them, but again, just little demons sitting there in the background, you know, I learned to shut them up a little, but they were always there. And I hope people can learn from that. Like everyone has them like listen to Scheffler postmaster saying he was crying to his wife in the morning, Sunday morning saying, right. can I do this? Am well, I ready for this? Well, and then he went out and did it. Like, look at that. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Carrie and Evan. I mean, I just played in a scramble last week, but we can relate to this. transition to the scramble. It's amazing. No, but it, 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 it's, it's playing off this. I've played in enough scrambles where all three guys in front of me hit it in the water or hit it in the street or hit it. Yeah. You can't find it. And there's days where I can get up and I can still put it in play, put it in fairway. I can put it 15 feet. We played on Friday and this was happening a lot. And I just couldn't do it. I, I was, it was in my mind. Those voices were in my head as you know, it was just like, I just don't feel like I have the move today. And I just, you know, couldn't save the day, but it's the voices, right? Guy, like they're never going to go away. It's just, how do you just deal with them and do your move? And I just, on Friday, I just couldn't do it as well. <laughs> you know, look at the difference at like, I was at St. George's this past week for the Canadian open. I walked the course on Wednesday in the pro-am. And honestly, this golf course is spectacular and terrifying. I mean, the rough was like, you know, up to your knees, crazy undulation and everything else. And I was like, wow, what are these guys going to shoot out here? And you saw like the scores on Thursday and Friday are to Brad's, you know, point, these guys are playing for the cut. And then what happens on the weekend? They absolutely demolish the place. Right. You know, Justin Rose could have shot a 59. He was like, what was he, 11 under after 14? Rory and Justin and, and Fina, those guys were just throwing birdie after birdie. It was incredibly exciting. But that was the same golf course. And just all of a sudden, they're freed up. They're getting the adrenaline going. And, and there's, there's something to that, right? So I'm like, to your point of like, someday you're freewheeling and you're the hero. And then other days <laughs> you're feeling it. And it you right. wish you <laughs> Probably even these guys at the at the top of their game, they're feeling different on different days under different circumstances. Yeah. But it makes me think about, yeah. Carrie, what Great point. Uh, Colin Morikawa said this week, which, by the way, we had Colin's coach on a couple of weeks ago, Rick, for the second time. And Colin has is probably, and Brad, this kind of speaks to something you talked about earlier. 
Colin might be the most consistent baby cut player on tour over the last few years. That thing is as reliable as it can get. And guess what he's playing at the U.S. Open this week? A draw. And they can't (laughs) figure it out. They're trying to figure it out. They haven't quite figured it out. But to your point, Brad, about whatever drive you have on the range, you kind of have to go with. He's going with the draw this week. And it's wild. But at the same time, Colin spoke about in the interview about acceptance. And I know it's really hard. Acceptance is so simple, but it's not easy. But, Serm, your thoughts about, say, quote, saving the day, right? Or, Brad, your thoughts about your livelihood. That's how our brains work. The question is, how can we? have something in our toolbox to shift, accept those thoughts, not fight them, resist them, let them in, realize you are not your thoughts. You're the observer of the thoughts, choose something a little bit more productive that gives you some more energy versus depleting it. Focus on some keys that maybe an executional key, right? Like, I don't know, care what you guys think. It's just your routine's got to be good. Your breath's got to be good and you just got to do it. I don't know but how sir, you-, you know, for you, when you make a big turn, usually have great shots, good shots. Yeah. For you, if you're feeling that, Oh, I really have to do this because my livelihood, I got it or not your livelihood, but you got to save the day of the team. If you accept that in, take a breath, make a big turn. And your only job on that swing is to make a big turn. You just gave yourself a better chance to make a good swing than thinking about saving the day. And that's what I'll kick, kick it over to you guys. Is it a physical thought that helps you under the gun or a mental thought or is it a combination? I think everybody's different. I think everyone is different. Evan, I could have used you about 10 years ago, man. This is good <laughs> stuff. <laughs> um, so I can go back to maybe uh, I was in a playoff at a corn fairy tour event in Columbia. I ended up winning. Ollie Schneider Jens was the guy in the playoff and, and he rinsed two balls before I even hit my second shot. So I was in control and it was a four iron from 220 yards over water And number one, I said, Hey, you're hitting it great. Just do what you've been doing. And number two, this is what we play for. So kind of both things were not physical. Both things were confidence inducing. Mm -hmm. And one was kind of a release. like, this is how it's supposed to be. This is Mm -hmm. normal. Um, So I think a lot of the time it's mental, but kind of my overall, uh, my overall swing key over the last 12 years with the same instructor has been a physical one. Like you get set up, I have my little checklist and it takes, you know, two and a half seconds to get into my posture, whatever. And from there, it's just a little lead with my hip. So that's a physical thing. Yeah. But it's the same every time. It's the same with every shot except for short game. And I think, again, that speaks to a little bit of repetition same thing every time. Let's not change things because when we change things, we introduce new variables and that can grow exponentially out of our control. Right. Yeah. Well, Brad, it, it's kind of similar to what Rotella told us, which is like, look, golf's hard enough. You have a better chance to hit a good shot with bad thoughts or good thoughts. Bottom line, what gives you a better chance, right? You spoke about chances at the beginning. So I think it's, it's a really great lesson for everyone because that anxiety is going to come up. It's natural. You're doing something that means something. Like you said, that's what it's supposed to be. But Colin Morikawa reset the same way when he was playing. I forget what hole it was when he drove the green and won his first major. That was his first major. He could have said, holy shit, like I could win my first major. But he says, let's go 
why not me? Right. So what you're doing is you're simply just basically what you're doing is you're recognizing anxiety as excitement, like bottom line, and you're reframing it in a way that's more productive. And that takes practice. But I just think this is so valuable because this is so relatable. Carrie's a 3.6 and is going through the same thing I am as a seven, the same thing I was when I was a 12. And Brad, you're a plus four played on tour, it seems like forever, and you've experienced it your whole career. So it's not like you get to this level and then I'm good and I I don't have it anymore. (laughs) Like there's no finish line. It's always a work in progress. And so why don't we finish it with this? What is something that we either haven't talked about or that you want to reiterate for the 12 or 15 handicap or even the expiring pro that's listening to this from each of you? What is something that you want to harp on as something that either you want to commit to moving forward or something that's been really helpful that the player should remember for their game? I think for my game, just thinking about my own game, just, just in this conversation, I didn't come in here with this, but I do think that like, I do love to just play the game of golf and score isn't like my number one priority. I would say most of the time it has been in the past and and it can be, but not every time. But I would say like, I'm going to make a conscious decision to be like, Hey, I don't mind just playing around and seeing whatever score I put up. I can do that. And it like, I don't lose any sleep over whatever I shoot in golf anyway, but also like, like I had a little hop in my step after, you know, shooting a 70 and like, it does feel good. Sometimes I am going to commit to playing for score and just saying like today it's about score and we're going to grind for every, every single shot. And I think I just need to have like that commitment because between the two, if I'm wishy-washy, things don't generally go that well. So just committing to, to either whichever that is for me, you know, it's, it's obviously super clear for Brad every single day. For me, I think I just want to decide like, which of those paths am I going to go down today and then commit to it either way. Well, it's kind of like acceptance, right, Carrie? Like if you're going to get down on yourself, like with work, you take your time off, but then you're judging yourself for not working. There's no point of taking the time off. Right. So it's almost like embracing the states that you're in either say today, it's okay. I'm just going to have fun. And the fun is going to be hitting shots instead of judging yourself for not playing for score and vice versa. Right. I think that's super, I think that's a great lesson for a lot of people. And so much of golf is indecision. Right. Right. Get in the middle. (laughs) That's the whole round. Right. Like, right. Five or six, right. Diet or jam it. Right. Like it's just the whole day, you know? (laughs) Yeah. What about you, Brad? The main thing that I think everyone should embrace is golf is super difficult. Like you're hitting a small ball with a small club. And so anything that you try to change, whether it's in a practice session or during a round, it should be really small. Nothing big. My coach used to say small, whatever you're doing. If I'm trying to do that little hip thing, make sure it's small because there's we go so fast in the golf swing you're moving 100 miles an hour big changes are going to produce probably disastrous results right if you're playing golf you're already pretty good if you're listening to this you're probably a pretty decent golfer a 10 handicap is a pretty good golfer i think yeah. have you ever been to you ever been to a public range um <laughs> so <Plenty>. so <laughs> so little tiny changes oh my god my ball position is too far forward okay change it like half an inch not 
seven inches, mm, right? Yeah. Um, but the Small. one thing that people are finally tuning into, and I didn't know this until recently, the breathing thing. We're in a sport where we probably hold our breath more than we realize. And stress levels are affected by how we breathe. So big, deep breath in, big, deep breath out and keep it constant because a lot of times, you know, that old adage of, Hey, do you breathe in or out when you putt? Like, I don't know. I'm probably, I'm probably halfway to passing out when I putt. Um, we, <laughs> so, we, we just forget to breathe, Brad. Exactly. Much as we have to exactly. we forget. <laughs> right? Those are two kind of main takeaways. If I was trying to advise someone on how to get better, it's those two things. Like you're already probably pretty close to being a really good player, small changes, breathing and again a consistent approach if you're playing for score like i totally appreciate carrie's outlook when it's like i'm here to get away from work well this has always been my job so that was work so i had to take it uber seriously you know 99 percent of the time but just a consistent approach like guys try to do different things when things aren't going well and it's probably a redoubling down on the things that you know make you successful that's probably the better way to go than these vast changes does that make sense i think uh, no yeah it's great i know we were a bit over time we should definitely bring you back because i feel like we didn't even scratch the surface but before we go i'm going to give you guys one last chance to something that maybe we didn't talk about that you want people to know about red rooster i just think it's such a unique opportunity to have the founders on that are also great players that if someone is thinking about getting themselves a glove especially a glove subscription, like anything that you want to say that maybe they should know. I think the important part is like, we're not reinventing the wheel here, right? There's a lot of good gloves out there. We make a really good glove, as you mentioned, ranked number one and two performance glove by my golf spy. We're super proud of that. But there's these little things that we do outside of the quality of the glove that I think kind of separate us. And so if people take a chance on a one-time purchase, are impressed by the product, and then maybe consider a subscription like once every three months, once every two months, whatever, just to kind of get into the feel of what we do, I think people will be impressed. Again, there's a lot of good gloves out there, but I think Again, what you said, Evan, the the give back to junior golf is something that we're also uh, super involved in. And and we, we kind of like giving back to a game that's given us in different ways a lot of our lot. Like we've given a lot of our lives to the game. The game has given a lot to us. Uh, so we, we want to get more people playing golf, especially junior golfers. I'll kind of build off that. We've done a few events lately where we've had some partners uh, we've done some corn fairy events and different charity events where we've come on site and we've given out uh, as tea gifts our glove compartment, which is our, our glove carrying case, keeps the gloves flat and dry. It's a great accessory for our gloves. But the other thing is when we fit people, I would say half the time they're wearing a glove that's too big. Most people, they, they like to put a glove on. They want it to fit easily. And it fits for the first round or two. It's really soft leather. It stretches out a little bit. Rounds three, four, and five, it's not doing you any favors. So I think kind of one tip we've seen is, you know, we offer every one of our 11 styles in 26 sizes. We offer free exchanges, free returns. You know, try a couple of sizes. You may be happy with a medium. A cadet medium may be a better fit. You may have always worn a medium large, try a medium, 
it may fit even better. I've often seen people go down multiple sizes. Glove size is really subtle. The difference between a large glove and a small glove is four sizes, but it's very small. It's very minimal, the difference between each of them. So I think that's the sort of key is get customers kind of like trying to find the proper fit. And once you do, the glove will last longer. That's a nice benefit. It fits better and it does its job better. You know, it's going to perform better. So that's what I've sort of noticed over the last year of interacting with our customers. I would say, you know, nine times out of 10, when they try between two sizes, they keep the smaller size. That was the light bulb moment for me with Red Rooster. <laughs> yeah. <It's> sizing. <laughs> it's always, this feels okay. Do we change your life? <laughs> <laughs> He's fired up. Well, guys, yeah. I can't thank you guys enough. Again, redrooster.com slash train. That'll get you 20% off everything. But we're super excited to have you guys on board as partners because, again, we love what you're doing. I mean, what better thing you're giving back and also you're getting the number one best performing glove, my golf spy. So kind of a win-win. I thought this mental game roundtable was really special. So thank you guys again for hopping aboard. We'd love to Absolute have you back. Pleasure. We'll be hopping aboard the Red Rooster train every round from here on out. So we appreciate you guys. Awesome, man. Really Thanks, enjoyed it. It's fun to interact with you guys. This has been a blast. Sorry for talking so much, but I was getting 22 years of mental thoughts out. It's only out the beginning, in, Brad. <laughs> out, in the, out, out in the podcast universe, yeah. Well, I feel like we just scratched the surface, so we might have to have you guys back. But um, thank you guys again, and uh, take care. All right. Thanks, guys.